Welcome to B2B Power Hour, where we dive deep into the real sales issues that stop you from making a good living in the profession we love. We discuss how to get, keep, and grow customers by unpacking the prospecting and selling techniques that work in 2023, the ones that you want in your personal OS as a seller. Forget the hustle. It's time for a Power Hour. Now, on to today's episode. Today on the B2B Power Hour, I'll be talking to Ian Cognac, founder of Ian Cognac Sales Coaching, Inc. Ian was a seven-figure earner at Salesforce that talks about what it actually takes to perform at the highest level of enterprise sales. First heard of you on JBase Blissful Prospecting, and I've been hooked, hooked ever since. And I can't wait to dive into the reality of enterprise sales with you. A lot of people know about your multi-million dollar deals and what you did recently in your career. But how did you get started? How did you line yourself up to get there? I started in sales in 2002, the end of 2002. So it's 20 years almost. And I'm still in sales. I own my own business, but I like to tell people I sell every day. I talk to CEOs. I talk to heads of sales, CROs. I talked to an SVP over at Google yesterday who has a team of 50 people in the enterprise group. So I have the privilege of selling And I think I'll always be selling because I love it. I started out selling copiers. The way I got started was I used to be a teacher in South America. I taught English for a year in Venezuela. When I graduated from college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I loved traveling and I headed down to South America. To make a long story short, I fell in love. My visa expired, came back to the United States, had no money, no girlfriend, no job. I didn't want to end the relationship. So I had to figure out a way to make and save enough money to bring her from South America to the United States. And quickly I realized teaching and photography and all the things I wanted to do wasn't going to cut it for that. So I made a choice. The choice was self-sacrifice. And while we're on the subject of work, that's really what it takes to be successful in any endeavor. And sales is is absolutely no exception. And that's self-sacrifice. So when I started in sales, I had no sales experience. I had zero skills, but I had a hell of a lot of a desire and a strong reason to be successful because I was broke, living with my parents and no girlfriend. And so I started out, I got a job selling copy machines door to door in Koreatown. I mean, these were $10,000 copy machines. They were big, multifunction devices. I remember my first couple of weeks, they gave me this like big binder and they said, go and learn the products. And they just showed up and I went door to door with a brochure and I said, hey, we have these great copiers and you in the market. And I literally just was cold calling all day, every day, getting parking tickets. And that was my entry into sales. And I'm very grateful for that year because it taught me really what the school of heart knocks is getting your door slammed in your face, having security guards kick you out of the building. I used to have a system for the elevators where I'd go up to floor 10 and then floor two, then floor eight and then floor three. So if someone called security on me, they wouldn't find me in that floor anymore. And I'd be (laughs) playing whack-a-mole with the security. No joke. That was what I was doing every day. And I failed in the beginning, but I kept going. And I learned and I had a great mentor 
and I learned how to sell. I learned how to hard close. I learned how to put people in the market. We didn't have BDRs. We didn't have any inbound leads. It was all go out, eat what you kill. And it was a very amazing, wonderful entry into the world of sales. You get a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, other podcasts, reading, and they don't necessarily apply it. Well, you took what you were doing, what is the old saying, like you're building the plane as you were flying it. How, what would be your recommendation to the people that are putting in the hard work, but are having a hard time learning and applying it? Well, when you say hard work, what do you mean? You say you're putting in the hard work. That's what I think applying it is. There's two types of people. There's those that learn by doing and by failing, and those that learn by reading and listening, but don't necessarily practice. It's almost like there's two extremes. So I see a lot of people that read books or listen to podcasts like this one, but they don't necessarily apply. And then they read another thing and then they do another thing. In essence, they're dabbling. And that's a lot more dangerous than doing and failing. So when I hear don't apply, what I hear is don't actually do and, and learn and fail and actually have that experience. Now, if you're trying and you're busting your tail and you're doing, but you're not having success. I mean, there's a lot of advice I can give to someone in that boat, but my first piece of advice is number one, keep going because too many people give up very quickly. And on the road of success, a lot of times we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we have to have faith. We have to have faith that what we're doing is going to eventually yield dividends. My strong advice for my coaching clients and anyone for that matter is to focus on the process and not the prize. In other words, if you make winning actually executing the daily goals versus getting a sale, you're going to get a tons of sales, okay? The process is every day I'm going to set one or two appointments. Every day I'm going to meet with one or two people. Whatever those targets are in terms of the front-end activity, Bill Walsh has a great quote. He says, focus on the input, not the output. Focus on the things that lead to the result, but don't get obsessed with the result. He was the coach of 49ers, inherited a 2-14 and 14 team and took him to three Super Bowls in, in 10 years after that. Same thing with John Wooden. John Wooden says, I never talk about winning. I talk about becoming the best version of yourself. Like winning is showing up and doing the hard things. That's what I would tell anyone. Because if you get discouraged and you stop or you're trying to change or you're overanalyzing, you're not going to see the rewards. We're always being tested to see how we can persevere, to see how bad we want it. So yeah, you keep going, have patience and have faith. That's my advice. Learn by doing. Best way to learn, learn quick, especially you said, if you have your process, you can see where in your process is failing and you can tweak it. I sell at a very high level strategic selling. It's very different, but for new people, for SDRs and anyone who's early stage, their sales career, where you have a big territory, you have smaller transactions, you really do just need to focus on the front end activity. I call it RGAs, revenue generating activities. And there's two types of RGAs. You're either advancing pipeline or you're creating pipeline. And if you're spending all day, every day, either advancing your existing pipeline, which is always number one priority. People think, oh, it's prospecting priority. No. Prospecting is what you do when you've done everything that you need to do with any active deal. When you've exhausted every next step in your pipeline, then you prospect because you're not going to not 
send someone a proposal or get the order form signed or follow up on the questions in light of just going after some new business. You're going to close the deal. You want to keep that momentum. It's not the same. If you have a full pipeline, you got to work it. And that's your job all day. But if you don't have a full pipeline and if you've literally exhausted all your next steps, then you, you go to prospect. And so I know it sounds overly simplified, but it's not easy, but it's simple. So when I started in sales, my mentor, a guy named Tim Harris, he said, Ian, I'm going to guarantee you, you get your girlfriend here within a year. Okay. I'm going to guarantee you. I'm like, how can you do that? He's like, you do what I tell you to do and you will be successful. I'm like, well, what do I have to do? I'll do anything. And he says, Ian, you need to do two and set two every single day. Okay. Do two appointments and set two appointments every day. Sustainable. That sounds easy. Well, it sounds easy. It wasn't easy. To set two appointments every day is hard. You got to do a lot of cold calling. And so I went door to door until I set those two appointments. Well, here's what happens. Setting two every single day, including the days when you're actually doing two, means that every week you are going to have 10 appointments you're doing in the next week or the following week after that, you're going to have 10 appointments that you're doing and you're always going to be filling the funnel and you're always going to be advancing the existing opportunities. And he said, if you're doing 10 appointments per week, no matter what happens, you will create four opportunities, four out of 10. And here's why. Because in copiers, people are on a 36 to a 60 month lease cycle. So out of those 10 people, at least four are going to have their lease expiring this year or next year, at least four, right? And fundamentally, you can just say, hey, I want to see if we can do better. I want to see if we can help you, you know, get better technology and reduce the price. And they're going to have to look because their lease is coming up. Okay. And of those four, even if you suck, and even if you're the worst sales rep in the world, you're going to close one. 25% close ratio is terrible, but anyone can do that. And if you close one every week and you open four opportunities and you do 10 appointments, you're going to close four deals in a month. And the average deal size is $8,000. So if you sell $8,000 four times a month, that's $32,000. Okay. Your commission's 10%. You're going to make your $30,000 plus your 22 base salary, you're going to make over 50K and you'll have your girlfriend here and you could pay for her college to get her her student visa, which is the only way I could get her there. And sure enough, I did the work and I had her there within a year. Wow. So that's what I mean by focus on the process, not the prize. The front end activity, the work every day is all you should be looking at. Even now, it's like I, I am crushing it in my business and it's only getting better and better every year, but I still every day focus on the process and the prize just comes. So there's no shortcut. There's no get rich quick scheme. There's no automation. Sorry to say <laughs> there's no easy button for becoming a multimillionaire and getting to the highest level in sales. It doesn't work that way. So Ian, people that are listening, where do they reach out to us a lot of the time and definitely need to push them your way, it sounds like, but they're struggling with the move from doing SMB to mid-market going to enterprise. And there's a lot of junior companies where they've never sold enterprise before. So this seller is brand new to enterprise. So you're two and two. How did that evolve when you started selling enterprise? Two and two does not apply to enterprise. I want to be very clear. When you have a big territory, you have a lot of accounts, when you are doing a fast kind of transactional sale, I'd say between 30 and 90 days, sometimes there's bigger. Two and two works great. But I took that approach my two and two, my front end activity approach made me very, very successful at Rico. I was their number one sales rep. I became their number one manager, number one general manager, then number one branch manager, and number one director of sales. Wow. I had six promotions 
in the last five years of my career there. And I taught that. And so I had this like deeply ingrained belief that activity yields pipeline, yields results. And then I get into Salesforce and I only have 10 accounts. And I try to apply my front end activity to just grinding two and two and just doing this high velocity. And actually, believe it or not, I got lucky my first year. I sent 15 emails to the CIO of a healthcare chain because I was just so like used to just rejection and high activity. And you know, I didn't have a lot of accounts. So I had to keep going after the same people. And I mixed up the messaging and I ended up getting him at the right time. He hated Microsoft. I ended up buying 20,000 licenses of Salesforce for a hospital chain. I did my first seven-figure deal and um, got rookie of the year. Well, I continued that approach now tripling down, like, yeah, it's all activity. And I end up missing my quota three years in a row at Salesforce, which basically was a big gut check for me. So I was selling 19 years. I hit my quota 16 of those 19 years, but the three years that I didn't hit all came in a row, all in the enterprise space at Salesforce. Mm. And so it does not work in enterprise, okay? I want to be very clear to anybody who's trying to sell enterprise. If you think the hustle, the grind, the hard work is going to carry over, it doesn't. And that's what I had to learn the hard way, yeah. unfortunately, because my identity was so grounded in this kind of hardworking out hustle guy. And I took that to the enterprise and kind of like thought I could outwork my quota. And it was a grind because I was doing a lot of transactional deals. I was doing small deals, but I had this massive quota north of 2 million and it continued to go up every year. And that's fine if you're doing big deals, but when you're grinding and treating everyone the same, I shared this on a webinar series today with Jason Bay, actually. I don't know if you got to hear that. Were you on there? Jay Bay, amazing. No, I missed it. I was I was in meetings, but... You got to register. It's on my post and you'll get a recording of it. It was phenomenal. We talked Ooh. a lot about this, but I was sharing the difference between transactional and enterprise is transactional is a grind. You're treating pretty repeatable. You know, you're kind of treating most people the same. And if you think about a grind, think about a coffee grinder. You put the beans in, the beans all look the same. They all come out the same and, and a little granular. And the difference between enterprise and transactional is if you try and grind your way in the enterprise, you're going to get just dirt and dust and nothing, okay? <laughs> because these companies, the big difference is in enterprise, less is more. What I mean is fewer but better is the way of the enterprise warrior. So fewer opportunities, but larger opportunities where you can go high, wide, and deep and sell at an executive level is the way. The people that I surround myself with and the top performers at Salesforce and myself included, what we all have in common is we don't do a lot of volume. We do a lot of large deals. <laughs> so it might be four or five, yeah. but they're very big deals. And it's not the same, you know, you'll still get your run rate. You'll still get your, you know, your add-ons here and there. But for the most part, we're hunting for transformational type of deals. And in order to do that, it's a totally different skill set than just being a hard worker. So before you were doing your two and two, you would change because you had to get super strategic and you had to find that transformative, the real value, the real reason to change. Why now? Why change? Why now? So what did your day look like? What did that look like after? It looked like a lot more time with fewer accounts. So instead of going after, you know, I had like 15 accounts at the time, I narrowed my list. I went to a group where I only think I had like five or six accounts. And of those accounts, I only went all in in a couple of them. I started segmenting my accounts. Instead of being at the surface level with smaller opportunities, I really 
walked the halls. I went in and a couple of my accounts you probably heard of. Activision Blizzard was one of them, the gaming company. Berkshire Hathaway Home Services was another one. Experian was another one. And it's literally, in these large enterprises, you have no less than 50 people that you're maintaining relationships with. We're talking about multi-billion dollar companies. Activision was a six, seven billion dollar company when I managed it. Berkshire Hathaway had had you know 50,000 real estate agents. Experian had 20,000 employees. These companies have multiple regions around the world. They have multiple lines of businesses. There's Experian has like a business to consumer product, like for their credit checks, but they also have a business to business product for banks and for lenders to you know do assessments of the people. They also have other products and services. Same thing with Activision Blizzard. They had an esports division. They had Blizzard. They had King, a mobile gaming app. So you have to be really deeply ingrained in knowing the different departments, the different stakeholders, how they make money, what their service experience is like, what their marketing is like. You become a customer of theirs. You become a customer and go through their experience so you can come up with insights. So you're spending a lot of time understanding the business, becoming a customer, reading their 10Ks, looking up all the key players, mapping out you know who knows what within the account, talking to a lot of people. I mean, just conversations and kind of figuring out the lay of the land. It can take literally three to six months to find the big challenge or the big problem that you're trying to solve. And then typically it's a consulting engagement. Typically it's doing some type of workshop or design thinking engagement or deep discovery where it's not one or two discovery sessions, it's 30 or 40 discovery sessions, literally. Mm -hmm. I was flying around the country for Berkshire Hathaway, meeting with their agents, meeting with their brokers, understanding what it was like to be an agent there. You know, we flew out to Philadelphia, we flew out to New York. We flew all around to interview so we can come back and come this, with this big report of here's all the things you're doing. Here's the tools they're using. Here's what your people are saying. So we can create a proposal that shows them how to transform. Because a lot of times these executives that you're selling to don't know what's happening on the ground. So we're talking about almost being an employee of their company and spending an immense amount of time walking the halls, meeting with their team, and coming up with ways to really help them massively change the way they work so they can drive revenue or improve customer experience or reduce costs or retain employees, depending wherever, you know, every company has different goals, but it's all about finding the company's goals, finding the biggest challenges or pain points, and then showing them how you as a company can help them address those challenges. And with Salesforce, I was very fortunate because we sold over 200 products. So any challenge that a company had, we would find a way to help. And if we couldn't help them, we would build something with the platform. We had tools to actually build custom applications. So that's really what it came down to is like getting really good at meeting with executives, getting really, really good at getting them to open up and let you into their world, getting their sponsorship, and then quarterbacking and putting your team to work. Because we could sell Slack or Tableau or MuleSoft or ServiceCloud or you know, click software. I mean, you you have to imagine like this is a massive amount of products and services. For me, it wasn't about knowing the products. People think you're going to have to know all your products and the technical. You don't. What you need to know is how to have business conversations and how to identify pain and problems and how to connect with people. And I was very fortunate to work in a company that fundamentally 
had a massive amount of solutions available to solve any problem. So I'm like, I'm not going to learn the solutions. I'm going to learn how to uncover problems and then I'll bring in the right resource. So I got really good at like sniffing out, okay, this sounds like an integration issue. I'm going to bring in MuleSoft. Okay. And let that team do their thing. And it was really like a regional vice president for those two accounts. And you have a team of co-primes or AEs that you're managing to make sure that you guys are all selling in the account that you're aligned. So I had a team of 20 people I was managing for two accounts. <laughs> so I, I would run these big weekly meetings, totally different job. I was an account director. I was a director within an account. It's called strategic account director is the title that I had. And it's like being a leader. It's not like being a sales rep where you're just grinding it out. So that's, I know I'm talking forever, but that's the skill set where if you're working in a large company where you're selling multi-million dollar deals, you really do have to be an amazing quarterback. You have to leverage your team. You have to have good executive connections. There's a reason it pays so much is because it's a extremely, extremely challenging job where you have to use every part of your brain and communication, leadership, and selling skills to be able to be successful. Reminds me of a Boston Consulting Group where they used to have almost like the people that would be like sleepers and they'd go into the company. And it sounds like at the start, you were earning their trust by anticipating their problems and working with them and being there, I bet you at some point you just became that trusted call. Hey, something's going wrong. Let's just call Ian. Ian will fix it. When I left Salesforce, I called the CIO at Experian. He's like, let's go to lunch. I want to see you. I want to hear from you. Another guy called, let's hang out. Like, It's not about like hard closing at that point because these are relationships and not relationship. Relationship has a bad connotation. Like It's like, oh, let's grab a beer. That's not that's not what I mean by relationship. What I mean is it's a partnership. Like they're spending so much money with you. They don't want you to be salesy. They want you to take the right action and the right step to help their business. So sometimes when you're trying to hard close or you're trying to pressure, it really can rub them the wrong way because they want to be with you. A lot of my accounts I had for three, four years, Berkshire Hathaway, I mean, the CEO is coming to, to speak to clients of mine because we have that relationship. He's been to my house, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. So it's like, you really need to start caring about their business and doing the right thing. And like, it's not about closing at that level. It really is about being an advisor and challenging them. And yeah, you're right. It's more consulting than it is selling. Like a blend of like a detective and a doctor and you're diagnosing. I can see one of the biggest changes and maybe issues with that move too is implementation. So you've made a promise. Are you going to walk away before that promise gets delivered? Are you going to be there? Because I imagine if they trust you, you built this solution by listening, really listening to their problems, quantifying that pain and making sure it may have a legitimate business case. Well, now you walk away. Not going to look good. The thing about Salesforce and, and frankly, most large technology companies, the giants, is they have a massive network of systems integrators and implementation partners to install the software. So for every dollar that somebody will spend on Salesforce, they're usually spending two to three dollars on implementing Salesforce. Mm. So we would have very tight relationships with Accenture or Deloitte or PwC or Slalom Consulting, all these companies that fundamentally we'd come in with and we talk to the clients and you know, we would bring them there and say, look, this is part of our team because they're going to be the ones who have to take what we show you and, and actually turn it into reality. So it's not just this vaporware. So we would actually, I mean, for the Berkshire deal, when we did the Berkshire Hathaway deal, we had our partner, it was a company 
based in Canada, one of our systems integrators in Canada. Salesforce just bought this company and I went with them and they came out and basically um, were with us the whole time we were doing discovery. The whole entire time we were doing discovery, they were with us and was basically part of our team because it's so darn important to have a good partner. You're absolutely right. So you can't walk away with it, but but we didn't actually implement our own solution, right? So that's the key. When you were doing those projects, did you also have to look at the change management in how you were pricing it and look at how much change would have to actually happen for them to realize the full value of that solution? Change management was a huge part of it. A huge, oh, it's called traction on demand. That's like, why is it taking me so long to find this? It's going to kill me. Traction on demand was the partner. A uh, guy named Grant, who I worked with, he was fantastic. Change management's a huge part of it. So if you're selling enterprise software, there's three ingredients for success. One is the software itself. It's got to work. It's got to be reliable, do what the requirements mandate. Uh, the second is the implementation of the software, having a good partner. To actually, it's like you're buying a soup. You need it tailored for their business. And then the third part of that is, is the actual company. So they need to be in a position where their data is clean, where they have the resources to actually take over after implementation, where they have the right training and onboarding approach, where they have the right approach to change management. That's a huge part. They need to have governance around updates and policies. So if you're not thinking about that, not just customer success, but really driving adoption and change and migration, like it's just going to fail. It's like a three-legged stool, you know, for them to have a solid foundation, they need the software, they need the right partner for implementing it, and they need the right people to to run it. And so we would help people set up a center of excellence for Salesforce, for example, to drive innovation. We would help people with training and rollout plans. We would help people with accelerators for helping their team get certified and have administration and developers enabled. So it really was this, I'd say 80% of the time, 90% of my time was spent on pre-implementation and establishing the vision and helping orchestrate and execute these large deals. But I was very good at delegating and finding the right partner and finding the right success team to make sure that the customers had that support as well. And if they weren't getting support from those resources, they all obviously knew they could rely on me. But I think a lot of salespeople feel like they need to do everything for the customer. And the reality is that if you're doing things that are post-sale, you are doing it at the expense of RGAs. I would just be really good at getting them connected to the people that I knew would be able to help them long-term, the right partners. I would spend a lot of time finding the right partner, depending on what we were Mm -hmm. selling. And then I knew I could trust them to do their jobs. I wasn't like micromanaging the partner. It's like, okay, you signed up with them. This is an independent company. And then on the change management side, the partner would usually scope that into the implementation. 100% of the time, we'd sell the customer customer success uh, Premier Plus, which included a success manager dedicated, included things like accelerators, trainings, uh, all kinds of resources. Because if they were calling me for stuff, if I didn't have that, if they didn't have that level of support, 24-7 support, like that would have pulled away from my selling. So I think that's a big part no one really talks about, at least for large enterprise sales, is like what happens after the sale. Because if you don't have that support, they're going to pull you away from future deals and you're going to spend a year implementing what you sold and then have a horrible year. Yeah, everybody's going to talk about it. Next thing you know, 
nobody's going to take your calls and away you go. I think that's why so many sellers, when they move from smaller deals to enterprise, they still treat it like checkers when they don't realize they're playing chess. And they also don't change their prospecting and the depth of research. And they, instead of disqualifying and waiting for that deal to mature at a rate, like you said, you dot your I's, you cross your T's, it doesn't happen, but you've burned your reputation. What are your thoughts on that? I say that sales, especially at this level, your reputation is everything. And once you burn your reputation, you're kind of done. I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Nick. It's, it's, if you treat, again, going back to the coffee grinder analogy, if you treat everyone the same and you're just trying to grind them to get whatever you can out of it in the form of commissions and closing the deal, you're going to burn bridges. You're going to be short-sighted. In fact, I have a story. I've never told this story to anyone, but it was 2016. It was the third year when I missed my quota in a row. And there were two large enterprises that I was selling to. And one of them was a company called First Legal. And First Legal, we had a million-dollar proposal we put out on a five-year deal. It was a $5 million contract. And the CFO called me. We wanted to go all in. I wanted to have a big year. I was like right next to plan. And the CFO called me. I don't even like telling this story. I hate talking about these failures, even though I'm grateful for them. And this was like, because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that I could have acted like this, but this is kind of where most people, I feel like most people in sales are very selfish. They're very money-driven, all the bad stereotypes I was guilty of, right? And it's not that they're bad people. It's just they're trying to win business, close a deal, hit quota. There's a lot of pressure. I mean, they're not bad people, but they have bad behaviors. When I say bad behaviors, I mean they're being super salesy, super pushy, high pressure. And in software, it's very true because we're trying to hit our bonus and hit the year. And so anyway, the story, I I put this million-dollar proposal in front of a company called First Legal. And I was I was hanging out with their CEO, their CFO. I mean, I had dinner with their CFO. We had a great relationship. We had a great solution. Everything was dialed in. We had a great partner. Everything was dialed in. The CFO calls me like a week or two before the fiscal year ends. Like, Ian, we don't want to go all in. We want to start a little smaller. Can you do a deal where you give us the same deal, but we can gradually roll it out? I talked to my leadership and the leadership's like, no, we need to push hard for the big deal because um, they're getting a great price. And if we break it up, they're not going to have the price point. So I told him that. I said, we can't do this. It's the end of our year. It's a volume play. I'm sorry. So what ended up happening was they didn't do the big deal. Okay. And it was a great deal for everyone, for us and for them. But because it was such a, what they perceived as a risky move, because it was such a high stakes bet to go all in, it was like all or nothing. Well, looking back at that, what I would have said now, knowing in my older age what <laughs> what I know now, because now I sell a lot. <laughs> in the past four years, I made our club and then I went in my own business. And I think I'll do a million and a half just on my own, selling coaching and software and consulting just on my own. So I sell a lot. And if I had to do that all over again, I would have said, Mr. CFO, I understand the concern. I understand why it feels like a big risk. You know, what would an ideal solution look like for you? What would you want to see in a rollout? What would you want to see? How quickly, if I were to come in and keep the pricing, but get your commitment to roll it out over a certain period of time, would that be feasible knowing that you're still buying, but you're not buying all at once? Would that be a solution? 
Or what is driving this concern about spending money? Is it fear? Is it cash flow? Is it risk? Like, let's figure out what's happening versus me just saying, no, it's got to be all in. You got to sign the deal. This is a great deal, blah, blah, blah. I would have worked with them and I would have tried to come up with a win-win situation instead of just trying to go for the big bang at the expense of what ended up causing me to miss my quota for a third year in a row. And, you know, again, I'm grateful for all the failure because it forced me to look in the mirror and to change my sleazy ways. But, you know, at the time it was like very much all or none, go for broke. And that's just not the way enterprise companies buy sometimes. Sometimes it is land and expense. Sometimes it is test in a smaller department and then get comfortable and do a much bigger deal. So I just feel like that's a very transactional kind of mindset. Like I'm never going to get anything if I don't get it all now. They're not going to do anything, but it's not true. I mean, it's just not true. I've seen it time and time again with my clients where they keep coming back to me and I tell them, you start small. Like let's not, I had a guy approached me yesterday saying he wants 4,000 licenses of my software, my coaching platform. And I told him like, that's going to be crazy. Like, first of all, it's brand new, but like, let's start with a workshop and let's see if you like the content. Let's set up some time. It doesn't scale. It doesn't make sense. That's all good that he's approaching me, but like, let's set up a call, buddy. <laughs> let's figure it out together. I'm not going to try to sell him 4,000. I wouldn't want that. I want to make sure the product scales. I want to make sure yeah. there's value. I want to make sure like, I understand what the hell he is trying to accomplish by buying the 4,000 licenses. There's so much that fundamentally I would want to know, whereas maybe five years ago, I jumped, okay, what do we do? Let's figure it out. Like, well, No, that scares me. I don't want that. So anyway, it's just a maturity thing, I think. I think it's this evolution and maturity thing in terms of sales. Yeah, the first sale is almost the cost of doing business because can can they trust you? And then once they show you show them that you can deliver on your promise, now you're open to good business and they know that you're going to actually take care of them. And I think that's the hardest part moving to enterprise is them giving you that level of trust because if you don't deliver, you don't get another sale. They don't deliver, they get fired or worse. Somebody's reputation's on their line. It's absolutely right. I mean, it's no empathy. Let's talk it out. What's in it for you? What are you afraid of? The other thing is like, you have to find change agents in an organization. One of the big shifts I made from um, transactional selling to enterprise selling when I really was able to do it at the highest level is I was got pretty good at finding people in the company that wanted to change what the company was doing. If they're like, no, I'm going to get fired. I can't do this. Like, that's not your person. Like, I want people to say, hey, if this fails, it's my ass. So let's figure this out and make like, that's a good thing. So I want people to say like, this has to work because I'm going to be fired. That's someone who's bold. That's someone who's courageous. That's someone who is going to move their company forward. Fortunately, I had that. I had that with Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. I had that in many of my deals. I didn't do that many seven, eight figure deals, but the ones that I did always had somebody who wasn't afraid to make changes in the company. These folks are called change agents or they're called mobilizers. There's a great book called The Challenger Customer. It's by CEB. I don't know if you've read that. Wonderful book. It completely changed the way I go and do prospecting. And I think about to build those customer insights that really understand why them, why now? That's right. It's why them, why now? There's a lot of methodologies out there. There's a lot of methodologies out there. 
I have a problem with methodologies fundamentally because they're not emphasizing the human-to-human component, just having a conversation. You could follow some banter, some spin or gap or um, challenger. They're all great. They all have a purpose. But really, the key to being great in sales is to be really great at having conversations and actually listening and understanding and connecting with people, like being a good person, actually trying to help and not being attached to outcomes. And when you're going through a methodology, like that's not the way people talk to each other. You know, a conversation flows, right? You can't just go down a checklist. And so I have developed a new framework, which I copyrighted and will be, yeah, I'm holding on to it now, but I will be, I'm sure doing a course or something with it, which is used to predict whether or not a deal is going to close and also help qualify early whether it's a real deal or not. In the methodology, it's super easy to remember. It's called PREDICT. It's just that. It's called PREDICT. And it's an acronym, not for following a methodology, but rather for assessing whether a deal is qualified and is likely to close, especially at that larger deal level. So I'll walk you through kind of what PREDICT is. You're hearing this for the first time. I've shared it a couple of times in private workshops with my clients. And like I said, it's copyright protected. So I'm not worried about anyone stealing it yet, but it is uh, something I'm very proud of. And it's this, it's really simple. The P stands for, actually, let's play a little guessing game, Nick. (laughs) I've made people guess on this, but what do you think the P stands for? Performance? Think about like methodologies, t- traditional methodologies like SPAN or MedPick or any of the, like, what do you think the P stands for? Problem? Problem. You got it. You ultimately, it stands for problem with pain. Okay. Because problem's not a problem until there's pain associated with it and they tell you why it's a problem. Well, why is this really a problem? What's it costing your organization? What's, how's it hurting you? You know, why do you need to solve it? Why now? Really digging in and understanding like, what problem are you trying to solve? That's the P. Okay. The R is the personal motivation, the reason. Why do you want to change? You can take this at the organization level. Why does your company need to change what they're doing? The why, but also why you? Why is this important to you personally? Is this going to help you get promoted? Is this going to help you with your career? Is this going to help you hit your bonus? Like, Is this going to help you raise money for your Series C? So really understanding like why If you get to their why, like in the challenger customer, that's very powerful. That's missing from all of the methodologies. The E is another one that's missing from every methodology. And I'll let you guess that one. So the R is reason. The P is problem. The R is reason. What's the E? It's like an evidence. Evidence is great, but that's more along the lines of the I. The E is no one gets them. So don't don't worry if you don't get them. Let me give you a hint. Think about how do you know if a deal or a person's like really interested Uh, How do you know if they're like really serious? What is a good indicator that they're super serious about it? I can't think of what the E would be, but I know that they start talking as us as a team and they start doing the we talk. Okay. So I call that engagement. Yeah, that makes sense. Customer is engaged with you. They're participating. They're sharing. They're communicating. They're getting back to you quickly. They're texting you. Those mutual action plans. There's a mutual action plan, but it's also multi-threaded engagement. We're not just single-threaded. So, And it's also engagement with the D, which you, you're going to get the D, right? What's the D? Decision. Decision maker, right? Decision. Yeah. So engagement could be a number of things, but ultimately how engaged are they? We know they're serious when they're going back and forth. In fact, every 
outreach or sales loft tool out there is trying to measure likelihood of a deal closing, and it's all based on the frequency of communication. That's why the E is so powerful. The D is decision maker and decision process, and that's pretty common in every methodology. It's, do you know how they make the decisions? Do you know what happens from start to finish? Are you dealing and working directly with the decision maker? If you are not working with the decision maker, your odds of Closing a deal decreased by 233% in the enterprise, according to Gong Labs, if you are not engaged with the decision maker, period. It's almost impossible to get an enterprise deal done if you're not dealing with power. At the SMB level, it's about 80%. Okay, if you're not talking to someone who can't say yes, then you're leaving everything up to chance and hopefully they know how to sell, but most of the time they don't. So that's what the D is. It's do we know their process and we engage with the decision maker? The I is impact. So that's the what you said, evidence. So impact is what will solving the problem do for their organization? What impact will it have on their organization? We're talking about the impact of the person. We're talking, there's four levels of impact. The first level is to the individual. How is it going to help the buyer, the person you're talking to? The second level is the users. How is this going to make the lives of your salespeople better, of your customer service agents, of your marketing people, whoever the users of the software, your IT people, how is this going to improve their life so they don't have to do mundane, tedious tasks or do manual processes? That's what the second level of I is, is the impact to the users. The third level is the impact to the company. What is the business case? What type of cost reduction will this bring? Will this bring better revenue? Will it bring a greater customer attention? Is it going to help with their employee turnover? So what are the key metrics that matter to the organization and how is this going to impact the company? And the final I is the customer. What will this do for the customer experience? If you're selling a software for anyone that interfaces with the customer, or maybe it's on the website where the customer experience is directly impacted, maybe it's for their support group, how is this going to make it easier to be a customer, more frictionless, right? So those are the four levels of impact. And I literally will ask that. And do we have a good business case to back that up? So I like your evidence. It's really powerful. Let's get to the C. What's your guess there? Contracts. I was thinking contract because now you're closing everything up and you're moving over to implementation. It's close. It's really good, actually, but it's not right. C is cost. Okay. Now there's a few components of cost. There's three components of cost. The first is the actual physical cost of what they're paying today. We need to know what they're paying today, what they're paying their people that are doing all these manual tasks that you're going to automate. We need to know what they're paying for any software that is going to be obsolete, consolidated, retired. We need to pay their know their infrastructure costs. We need to know their outsourcing costs. So any costs that will go away or be reduced by the software that you're selling, we want to quantify that. Because then if they're if we're asking a million dollars a year, but we can quantify that they're already paying seven hundred thousand through software that they're retiring, they don't need anymore, they're consolidating. We're only asking for three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's the key. You don't sell the actual cost of your software, you sell the gap between what they're paying today and what you're asking them. And it makes it way easier because that's how they position it, right? So get their current cost. That's the first thing. Get their opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is what are the things that you want to do that you can't do because of the current situation? How is this preventing you from growing? How is this preventing you from scaling your business? What are the projects you can't get to that are strategic because your IT team is completely bogged down in resource constraint, right? So opportunity cost is second C. And the third C is what you said. It's your proposal cost. Do they have our numbers? 
Do they know what it costs? Are they budgeting? Do they actually have the funding? And nothing happens unless we actually show them the pricing and ask them to buy. So do they know what our costs are? So that's the C. And then the last one is T. What's your guess? Thinking timeline. I'm hoping we're getting into timeline. We're getting into timeline. That's the T. That's the T. Why now? Okay. What is there a compelling event that we're trying to drive towards? Is there something happening in their organization? Are they trying to do this by a certain year? Do they have certain goals this year? Is there a big project or initiative that's coming from the top down? And then what's your desired go live date? So you can work backwards and figure out, okay, based on that, we got to get this in place here. So we need contracts signed by actually in two weeks, if you want to hit this time. So if you hit everything in predict, the way we use this is we take all of our deals, we get a spreadsheet or you can put it in Salesforce. If you want to steal it, just give me credit. (laughs) Um, Literally, and you go through all your deals and you say, is this deal really qualified? Do we know the problem with pain? Okay. Are we clear on their reason? Do we know their why at the company and the personal level? How engaged are they with us? Are we dealing with power? Do we know their decision process? Are we engaged with the decision maker? Have we done a business case? Do we know the financial impact and the material impact that this is going to have? Have we quantified their current costs so we can help justify the investment? And have we established timeline and compelling event and a reason to do it now so we can drive some urgency? And if you can say yes to those things, I can guarantee you, you got a deal. But most times you go through it, there's going to be some holes, there's going to be some gaps. And then you know where you can go back and actually identify next steps. So that's something I'm super proud of. It was, I can't even tell you how long and hard it was to get the word scramble to figure all that out. But that captures everything of all the methodologies out there. And then a couple of things that aren't in any of them, which are really important, engagement of reason specifically. I think of that as just the most beautiful discovery framework. And if you had that in like a cheat sheet as you're running through when you're going through your meetings, so it's Megan Mizziak or Mishak, sorry. We were saying, like, how many meetings did you run in Discovery? And she said, only as many as you need, but there shouldn't be a set number. As soon as you go and fill your predict, you're set. I want to have a conversation to uncover the problem and why it's a problem. I want to know the impact of solving this problem. I want to know who is impacted by the problem and how it's affecting them. I want to know why this is important to the person I'm talking to. I want to qualify and make sure this is worth my time, effort, resource to bring in my team, to do demos, to do whiteboards, all the things. And if upfront, I know that I'm dealing with something really important. I'm dealing with a decision maker who wants to change this. They have every reason to want to change it at the personal and the company level that I'm going to bring in my team and I'm going to go all in to help them get there. So it really is kind of a qualifying framework. And then it incorporates all the deal execution framework that you need to actually build a business case and actually you know, get a deal done in the engagement factor, right? So it's a great way to assess where you should spend your time and how you spend your time. And if you're doing like a first meeting, really dig into the P and the R, okay? And the I, those are the three most important things. The problem, the pain, the reason why it's important, why they want to change. And the I, what will solving this problem, enable you to achieve how it's going to help your business. And then if it's like big stakes, big reason, then yeah, you're going to very much want to spend a lot of time there. And that's kind of what spin is, you know, in, in a simplified manner, situation, problem, implication, need payoff. People buy for two reasons. Number one is to get away from pain. They're bleeding. They want to stop the bleeding. Or number two, to go towards pleasure. Okay. Gain. So in every single deal, it's one of the two. You don't just buy because you're bored. You're buying because you're trying to accomplish something. You're trying to go somewhere. You're trying to stop the bleeding because you know if you don't change, you're going to get smothered by competitors and by changing market factors. Sales is simple. 
And I spent 19 years telling you that. And it wasn't simple when I started. It wasn't simple in any one single year. But now looking back on it, it's really simple. Find the pain, understand the pleasure, and freaking help people succeed and show them how you can get them there. And you're going to make a fortune in sales if you can run your business that way. Don't jump on the problem. The first problem you hear, use predict, and you are going to crush your quota. Patience is definitely one of those things. But just notice what we're coming up on time. And Ian, thank you so much for going over predict with us, for taking the time. And uh, just before you go, where can people find you? How can they follow you? I'm going to do a selfish promotion right now. I have a course. I'm guessing by the time this thing lands, it's probably going to be sold out. I can almost bet that depending on when it is, but go to my website, untapyoursalespotential.com. Untapyoursalespotential.com. There's three levels of coaching available online, do-it-yourself coaching on your own, videos, modules, workbooks, templates, you name it. I got it. There's group coaching where I'm coaching and teaching you guys, and there's one-on-one. So bronze, silver, and gold. If you want help, if you want to work with me, that's your place. But I warn you, it's probably going to be sold out. The second place is just go to LinkedIn. I'm always posting videos. I'm always sharing. I have a YouTube channel you can check out. It's youtube.com slash Ian Koniak. I also have a website, ianconiak.com, where I do team trainings. I've done trainings at Channel Advisor. I've done training at other places. And I am always willing to come out to companies and speak to their sales teams and show them what they need to do to be successful. But I'm pretty easy to find. It's called Google. Just Google my name and you'll see all kinds of stuff that pops up. And yeah, it's been a pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much. We'll definitely have to bring you back again after maybe we can get people in your course. Make sure you follow Ian. He's always posting great content. He's always doing collabs with other great people that you know. And uh, thank you so much. Are you ready to level up your skills and take on fun challenges with great people that want to see you succeed? Join the 1UP Club today. As a member, you get the best insights and takeaways from the show delivered to you every week. Plus, brand new resources developed by our team of sales experts, the Team of 10. Go to b2bpowerhour.com slash join to get started today.